Yeah, right on, man. All right. So is it Dr. Nate Chapman? Yeah. All right. So you like, you flew in under the radar because Aaron Morris was telling me about it. Shout out to Aaron. Um, and I was like, dude, I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> and it was, I think, right after you had moved here. But I, I, around that time, I got my master's degree. So I like just left tech. But a, a whole bunch of people moved positions, retired, left different things uh right around that time 2015 which is about when when you came in yeah yeah i uh, graduated from virginia tech um june 2015 i defended my dissertation i moved here like a week after i defended my dissertation wow wow nice yeah virginia tech what was that like oh that was cool man that's um really where i got into the beer stuff really i mean i was into beer in undergrad i went to the college of charleston for undergrad i'm originally from south carolina um so I was interested in beer, but then when I was in Blacksburg, Virginia Tech, the beer scene was kind of getting going there, and mm -hmm. craft breweries were popping up more and more in Virginia, and just the scene in general was starting to really kind of pop and getting some national attention. And I mean, we went from like just over 2,000 breweries or something to now over 8,000 in about 10 year period. Yeah. So this was like right at the beginning of that, you know? Um, so I was working at a couple different bars that were trying to get better craft beer selections, and I had had some experience because I've been drinking it for years and was starting to dabble in online beer trading and beer forums and that kind of stuff. So, which is how we got these beers we're drinking today, by the way, some online beer trading. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And then, you know, kind of, as you know, getting a master's degree, you got to pick a topic eventually to do something on a dissertation uh -huh. or a master's thesis. So I was uh, studying sociology of culture and cultural studies. So I just thought, you know, there's nothing really out there about beer. It's something I'm into. Maybe I can be the guy the person to uh start that conversation so that's kind of where it began i guess yeah man that is one thing i i love and i feel like it's drilled in at a lot of colleges but they were like oh cool uh write your master's thesis about something that nobody's ever done before please yeah and you're like oh man okay well fortunately for me martial arts the most martial arts historians or practitioners with terrible biases there's only a handful of people that are historians that write about martial arts. Right. So it was, it was a pretty narrow field for me to get into. So that's... Yeah, uh, that, but I, I think that's like a really good opportunity, though, too, man. To, to, when you see a niche that you have you know, some experience in, particularly anecdotal and firsthand experience and a personal life experience, you can, if you're able to eliminate those implicit biases, you know, um, then you're, you can really add something. But I think, too, it's a good exercise to like be critical and look at the things that you enjoy i mean some of my other research revolves around music scenes you know you're in panic i'm in a fish so that that whole scene you know like but sort of deconstructing that and looking at you know the, the racial dynamics and gender dynamics in those scenes and things like that too so you know you um being close to a scene is is one thing or, or, or some phenomenon right but having like training and methodology and, and theory and, and being a social scientist or a historian you're you're able to like look past that a bit so Man, that is, um, I'm sure fish is the same way. I've never got too, too deep into fish. Like, honestly, just, I, I have liked everything I've listened to by Trey Anastasio. Like, really, I've never, there's been tons of times where I've been, like, jamming something, come on, like, Spotify or something afterwards. I'm like, this is sick, and it's, yeah. it's fish. I've just never got into them for whatever reason. And I didn't get into Panic till 2015, but the history of Panic 
is insane. And I assume the history of fish is too, as, oh, long, absolutely, yeah. as, as long as they've been doing that'll, that'll be a uh, volume two of the podcast, man. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. We could do, you know, I, I haven't got, I have a huge record player at the house, but I'm going to get another one, set it somewhere over here and just listen to vinyls while we bullshit. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like audience won't, won't be able to hear them. We can hear them, but right. we can still talk to each other. So that's but you can, be, but you can use it for like cut music too, oh, and yeah. inter, like you know, right here because you'll cut this part out. You could have a little transition with music and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be dope, dude. Um, man, I need to hook you up with my buddy Slade too, who uh, did those mixes for you. Oh yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He, man, he is he's the man with like doing like putting stuff together like, to, like exactly what you're talking about, like how to hook up the audio and stuff, man. But you know he, uh, but he loves to like work on that kind of shit. So nice. man, I can put you in touch with him sometime. For sure, too. I would. I would love that. Maybe he wants to come on the podcast, or I just talk to him. Right? Like yeah, he I, I'm open to talking. He, he to doesn't anybody. live here, but we could do a Zoom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll mention it to him, man, because he just likes to talk gear, man. You know, like we could Zoom from here and show him your setup yeah. and stuff, man. And he just like to check it out. Man, I do. Like, I want to create like a. Uh, Joe Joe Rogan did this. He, he has a blog that they've continually updated that's a blog page article about just his studio. They've updated it since he changed everything, moved to the new studio. Like all the gear, links to get it on Amazon. I, I kind of did that with like a YouTube playlist for like a bunch of different pieces yeah. of gear, like my board and my, my handheld recorder. Some of, the, some of the stuff I have in here, but I think that'd be super awesome to do like a podcasting 101, like yeah, yeah. overview the studio, sure. link the video and the blog. Because I've got a blog now, I just haven't posted it. Dude, not only that, man, but like all the stuff I watched on YouTube when I was trying to make my own videos, the, the videos are, the, the good ones stand out because there's just a bunch of shit, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, what was I talking about? Uh, well, we got off on ge- uh, gear, your buddy Slade. Oh, yeah, so, uh, but back to the beer stuff. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, I guess when I was in Blacksburg, though, working at a craft beer bar, I started meeting brewers, I started meeting other bartenders, I started meeting distributors and reps, uh, so, you know, the, the marketing people that come in and, like, if you go to a bar or a gas station or um, grocery store, you see the neon lights or the posters and the ads. Yeah. Those are put there by wholesale distributors, right? So they control the marketing of beer in a particular area. And so each wholesale distributing company, like, for example, in in Virginia, we had uh, Blue Ridge Beverage, okay? So in their portfolio, they might have Anheuser-Busch, but then they wouldn't have Miller or Coors, right? But then they might have Sierra Nevada, but they might not have Sam Adams. And then they might have some smaller microbrews, but not others. So it's an attempt to like prevent monopolization, right? It's called mm-hmm. a three-tier distribution system, which uh, I can talk about more if you want. But uh, yeah, that that is interesting. That's more, the, that's more like the weeds and the history of it. So if you want the more historical side, well, here's a question. Just thinking about this, like at any point, does this tie into you know? Because I'll tell you where, like, you mentioned uh, panic scene having a rowdy fan base. True, yeah. very true, very true. Um, they out they they broke record beer sales at least two venues I was at right oh, yeah. like where does this does this story cross over into your uh, into the music scene basically well I think we offer up um, what what we do in the book is certainly try to put some historical um, context into the way that what what we would refer to the panic scene, the fish scene, craft beer scene is a, a white space. Uh, so okay. how, how white spaces form, like the formation of a white space and uh, how they function 
in terms of you know reproducing and uh, perpetuating inequality um, and discrimination, but also how they are steeped in stereotypes and you know often discourage minorities from consuming particular goods. So think about like how many black people do you see at a widespread panic show? How many Very black people do you see at a fish show? How many black people do you see at a craft brewery? Right. So that th- those basic questions though, and those like simple observations, were kind of what led us to getting into to the book you know like we we were i was doing a a lot of research on craft beer at the time about gender and gender dynamics and just being the sociologist uh i was like well okay if we're going to consider gender we also need to consider you know race and Mm -hmm. social class and other other aspects too right and take a more intersectional approach so we just started with that simple question after reading this article the title of the article and i've actually connected with the guy's name is dave infante and uh, he writes for like Thrillist, Draft Mag, Punch, some of these like bigger, you know, beverage uh, and kind of culture online journals and newsletters and stuff. But uh, the title of the paper was Black People Don't Drink Craft Beer. Why? You know, something to that effect. And so we kind of just started there. But, you know, like when you have a question, why don't black people go to widespread panic or why don't black people go to fish? Why don't black people like craft beer? It's never that simple, right? So we the book you know had to look historically at like the the formation of the beer industry Mm -hmm. um and what all that involved the systemic racism um in hiring practices and discrimination in hiring practices um post-prohibition but even pre-prohibition you know the treatment of immigrants and and certainly the the treatment of slaves and african-americans for hundreds of years right leading up to all that right that's just one part um but then post-prohibition when we see like the actual you know sort of consolidation of the beverage industry, how those structures became, you know, more galvanized and concretized and, you know, really set up boundaries to keep people out, right? So just one example um, would be if, you know, um, when we had mentioned the book, uh, people had posted comments, you know, like, well, if, if black people want to brew beer, why don't they just go work at a brewery, right? Well. In the 1950s, 1940s, 1950s, in the Jim Crow era, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's pretty hard for a black man, certainly a black woman, to go and just get a job. But also what a lot of people don't know is these things were tied to union houses, right? Unions, yeah. labor unions. So um, the way to get into a labor union, you have to be referred by someone. You have to know someone. You can't just go apply and get in, right? Hence the Holy Brotherhood aspect of it, yeah. like a fraternal order of, you know, welders, whatever, right? So then you have them limiting access and gatekeeping to keep minorities out of these labor unions. And then when you have breweries that are forced to hire or air quotes, forced to hire labor um, union workers, well then you can't get minorities into that industry. Right. And that, that's just one, one like small aspect of it because. Yeah. Well, and two, so you, I'm sure you're familiar at least in passing with the Elaine massacre here in Arkansas. It's like, yeah, labor union meeting. Yeah. So that's that's interesting um, about how. So what you're saying, so African Americans in Jim Crow Arkansas, for example, while they don't cut white people's hair, they did cut all the like that barber did do well, right? But he was only cutting white people's hair. Um, so what you're saying is maybe like while we see people become barbers and things like that, that this is more of a niche where you we don't you just don't see white people starting their own brewery at all. Well, so we we do actually know about a few brewers, black brewers. Theodore Mack is one in the People's Brewing Company. He is widely regarded as like the first independent black 
brewer to own his own brewery and everything. Um, his story has been a little bit like it's not been lost; it's out there, but people have just glossed over. Is he still it, right? alive? No, no. But uh, Garrett Oliver with Brooklyn Brewing Company, probably seen Brooklyn Beer around. Mm-hmm. It's a really good brewery. Um, they've been in the game for. I don't know, going on almost 40 years, you know, late 80s, early 90s. But Garrett Oliver was their brewmaster. He's the first black brewmaster um, in the U.S., and he's won international and national awards. I mean, he's widely regarded as one of the best brewers in the world, you know. But that's two people, you know. So what it does really, uh, to answer your question, is it's not as simple as just, you know, going out and, and like, starting a brewery, right? Because um, that's what we were trying to figure out is, like, how how would one drink craft beer first, right? But before we could answer the question of why don't black people drink craft beer, they said, well, then how do people who are in the majority, white people, white males that look like me and you, beards mm-hmm. and mustaches, right, that listen to jam bands <laughs> that are drinking beer, how, how do we get into it, right? So if you look at the demographics and, and of who the craft beer drinker is, we know that they're generally... You know, and when I say craft beer drinker, this is someone who like self-reports drinking craft beer two, three times a week on average. You know, something like that, or will go to breweries, whatnot, right? So, they're usually between the ages of 25 to 40. They're usually college-educated, uh, middle, low-middle income, right? They're not working class, right? Um, and they live in you know more suburban-type areas but rural areas that are developing and you hear the word revitalization a lot, gentrifying areas, um, which is something else we looked at. So you ask yourself, how did these people get into beer, right? Well, we know craft beer is more expensive. Okay. So we can say already there's a class element, but there's this other idea about cultural taste, right? And how you develop a taste for beer, because I mean, my dad drinks beer, but like, what's your dad's favorite beer? If like if he if you go to your dad's fridge, what's in there? Dude, my dad doesn't even drink beer. Oh, really? <laughs> Crazy. But my uncle Mike, Coors Light. Yeah, and that's what I grew seen, up on. Dude. And Uncle Mike will never drink anything but Coors Light, right? Far as I know, that's what he's still doing. Right. I mean, and it was like my whole life. I saw somebody had a silver can, like a Shasta, in one of my classes the other day. I swore it was a Coors. It was like a diet Shasta. I don't know why they were drinking that, but I was like, "Dude, you drinking a Coors Light? Like it looked like a silver, silver Coors Light." Yeah, yeah man. That was the first beer I ever had because that's what my dad drank too. Yeah, that's classic. But you know, so so for that that like that generation grew up in 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, um, baby boomers and then mm-hmm. Gen X. To them, like beer was just this thing that's like catch all term. Like it was like ubiquitous, you know. It's just, that's everything's just beer, you know. Like there was no distinctions between, mm-hmm. you know, all these different kinds of beer. So if you said, I'm gonna go get us a couple beers, well, if you're at Uncle Mike's house, you already knew what that was gonna be. And anything that wasn't a Coors Light to Uncle Mike looks like either not as good or as different, right? So that's a process that we call distinction, right? Pierre Bourdieu, so more cultural sociology, cultural studies, how we make distinctions between products. Like we're about to drink a different beer here that the first one we're having is a hazy American pale ale. From it was a, tasty, man. It was really good, right? Um, pretty fresh, too. Uh, brewed in um, by Parish Brewing Company, and I think it's Lafayette. But uh, actually, yeah, or Broussard. You know, um, Dr. Thibodeau, Jordan Thibodeau, psychologist. 
No, I don't. Uh, he's, he's a good friend of mine. Um, uh, but he, his parents live like two blocks from the brewery. Oh, nice. And they're like world renowned, you know, like up and coming brewery. And so they just go pick us up beers and send them to us. It's awesome. Yeah. But um, yeah, so, you know, that, that was a pale and we're about to drink a stout, you know, so two to- totally different styles, right? So that's a stark example. But like, let's say I put Coors Light, Bud Light, Miller Light, and then a few other light beers, Michelob Light. If you can ever actually find Michelob Light, by the way, it's actually oh, it's, pretty I, good. I, I've had my fair share of those, too. Yeah. I don't like Ultra, but Michelob Light, man. Mm-hmm. Michelob Light, Miller High Life, and uh, Southpaw Light are, like, my secret. Like, I don't tell anybody those beers I drink. But if I see a sixer of bottles, only bottles, you know, I'll go for it. What do you think about just Bud, Bud Heavy? Is oh, all day, bro. Yeah. All day. If, yeah. if I'm, like, at the golf course or whatever, I know they've got Bud Light, but I just like to mess with people like, yeah, six-pack Budweiser. And like, yeah, and I'm like, yeah, Budweiser. Dude, it's, uh, I, I actually enjoy Budweiser um, and, and PBR. But those are like the only two like domestic beers that I like the uh, I guess the heavy form of. I had a PBR light one time in New York City. It was the first time I'd ever seen it. It's a light blue ribbon instead of the red ribbon. Yeah, yeah. Um, man, it was trash, dude. It was terrible. And then Coors Original is terrible. But Coors I don't think I've ever had a Coors Original. But Coors, Coors Light's tolerable. It's just like Miller Genuine Draft is terrible. Miller Light's terrible. High Life is that sweet spot, literally. Yeah. I mean, it tastes like sugar. But, yeah, do you see, you, you know, you drink these beers that, like, you just have, like, memories attached to them. You know, like, when we were in college, man, um, in our fraternity, we would get $45 kegs, right? We would go find a keg shell somewhere if somebody had one. Because that was like a $50 deposit. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes, you know, we just took them when we saw them in someone's yard or whatever. But, hey, man, lock that stuff up. We used to chain ours up, man. You know, we'll hear you if you're coming to get them. That was money, you know. But um, we, then you'd get a keg for $45. Like a half-barrel keg, you know, 160 beers uh-huh. of 6% malt liquor. <laughs> Rocking a good time, man. Yeah. But, oh, uh, man. yeah, anyway. Uh, so my point, though, is like, what we looked at in the book is like, well, if, you know, blacks and other minorities in these, you know, marginalized communities are only exposed to like malt liquor, for example, if they're only marketed, that's where the role of the distributor comes in, right? Because they have an advertising budget that they choose to spend in certain places and which products to, and, you know, in some of our interviews, we found some of these, you know, carried pretty hard stereotypes, you know, like, why would I sell to, uh, a craft beer in a black neighborhood they can't afford it that kind of thing oh man right? yeah yeah and you think that if that's industry wide and we also you know looking at the makeup of the wholesale distributor industry is it's just all white males man. was there ever any uh signaling of um not just they can't afford it but um well you know this will make them like yeah, I feel like there were some stereotypes with Native Americans and drinking alcohol with like. Uh, well, so part of that is, man. Um, just to be honest, is you know you got to think, you got to ask yourself why these people are drinking what they're drinking, mm-hmm. and then what the perception is of them drinking t- from our perspective, you know, and what's the power relationship there, right? Because. The Native Americans example, or the original peoples and indigenous peoples, you know, like the notion of like quote fire water and and things like that is is, is really problematic, right, man? Because that was something that we introduced to them, 
you know, in, in, a, in a, a, a much bigger way, right? And so then when you displace a people, and this is similar to the gentrification process, but on a much, much larger scale, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking about genocide effectively, right? Um, you know, you strip them of their their land, their property, and the meanings attached to that to literally displace them, you know, it, what do you do, you know? I mean, I, it's to, to see the alcoholism rates, the suicide rates, also the, you know, sexual assault and unreported you know, like missing women. I don't know if you've, um, on reservations. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you yeah, know, stuff, stuff like that is, is because they're, they're, they're so, you know, they're not out of touch, meaning they're not connected to, to the world, but society doesn't care about them. Right. So it's a difficult position, man. Um, you know, but, uh, I think too, when you look at that, there is an argument to be made, particularly like with malt liquor, um, just by definition, industry definition, malt liquor is an inferior product to beer. It's considered a lower tier product. It has higher alcohol content. So essentially what they do to make malt liquor is they take the beer that they wouldn't, you know, didn't turn out as well as they wanted it to for some reason or was going to be a lower alcohol content. It's kind of like leftovers, the dregs or mm -hmm. something, you know what I mean? Um, in like a way. Like a hot dog of beers. Yeah, kind of, man. And so what they do then is they jack up the alcohol content by putting a bunch of sugar in there. And the yeast eat that sugar and make alcohol. So, one, it makes it sweet. But, two, it makes it very high alcohol content. So, you know, malt liquor is closer to, like, 6.2 to 7.2 range, mm -hmm. right? A Budweiser, which is on the higher end, is, like, 5.2 or 5.3. A Bud Light is 4.2, I think. Um, a Mick Ultra is like a 3.4 ABV, right? So you can see quickly that it's it's becomes a, a a quick like increase in the ABV by volume, right? But also think about how malt liquor was sold, right? Malt liquor was sold in 40 ounce bottles that at the time were not resealable, were behind the counter in a cooler, so a convenience impulse buy location in a store, right? Also. You know, there's the fear that, you know, any black person that comes into your convenience store is going to rob you. So you have to keep the things that they want behind the counter, right? So there's some of that going on as well. You know, again, the stereotypical stuff, right? But then when you open that thing and it's hot outside and that thing's cold and it's a brown paper sack between your hand and that, and you got 40 ounces of it, I mean, you know, this these two beers right here are not even if we this isn't even 30 ounces combined right so 10 more of that to yourself like that's a lot man dude I, you but know, it encourages that immediate and total consumption you know yeah no i would i with 40s 40s are great i used to periodically grab a 40 if i was like a passenger uh like I knew I was going to be on like a two or three hour trip or something. Oh, yeah. I, would, I would just kill a 40 at the gas oh, yeah. station. And totally. it's like, all right, that's good. Yeah, totally. There were some mad dogs and stuff. Yeah. I mean, and then you also see though, like, and you're, you're probably aware, but like the, you know, late nineties or two thousands, you know, white college kids playing like Edward 40 hands and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And so there's like some co-opting and appropriating of the 40 as well and turning it into like a, a white college frat boy thing. Right. And, and to do that, like, you know, is, is problematic in a couple of ways, right? Because one, you're 
co-opting this this thing that you think means something because you've heard it in some rap lyrics and stuff but really like malt liquor is more of like a, a cultural thing in in that community right in mm-hmm. in that time right the, the late yeah. 80s, the late for the late 70s well, up to yeah, the yeah. 90s the first time i ever heard about hennessy was in a tupac song yeah, I 100%. mean, what, most white people I know did not know what Crevassier was, Hennessy, or any kind of cognacs, or Alizé, or any of that stuff, hypnotic, none of that. Thug passion, you know, from listening to hip-hop. And so what do they do, though? You know, you hear about it, and then you, you want to go and you want to see, because you think Tupac's cool, you think, right? And on the surface, right, there's nothing wrong with that, right? But at the end of the day, it's like you, we have to understand... You know, well, why is it that maybe black people drink hard liquor more than, you know, beer or other alcohol? Well, if in the 1960s when you're supposed, when people are going out to bars and the crap beer movement's getting ready to start and all this, you're not allowed to go to the same spaces as white people. Dude, this is... And you can't afford appliances like a refrigerator to keep a six-pack cold. What do you do? You're making your own booze or you're getting hard liquor, right? So there, it's not as simple as like boiling it down to or reducing it down to a, a choice that a consumer makes, right? And it never is. So I think what's interesting is to look at something that's seemingly, you know, innocuous, like what beer do you want to drink? And then looking back and seeing, well, what actually informs that choice and, 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 and is this affecting, a, you know, an entire you know, category of people, demographic category of people, you know? So it got heavy really quick, man, when we started. Yeah, man, you're blowing my mind right now. I mean, quite honestly, I would never would have thought about any of this. But this is, like, right up my alley at the same time. I'm like... Yeah, man. But did... uh, I mean, dude, I've, like, I've had bootleggers in my family, right? Like, back pre-60s and stuff, and then I'm pretty sure that that same uncle mike has it still but i'm not i don't know if it's still running but (laughs) but did you see any of that like you you mentioned like they're either gonna make their own beer or like do you see any bootlegging and so um i mentioned uh the 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 industry like getting in there and and learning how to brew or working at a brewery i mean even like working a forklift and lifting kegs like we we kind of focus on three things in 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 the book um and sort of you know how it became why why it matters and the movements to change it so the the how it became white part is really showing how that three-tier distribution system limits access to jobs and exposure but that two there's no representation in the industry um at the wholesale level the marketing level or the tap room bar level right like and then that leads to there's no consumers on that side right so what we kind of focused on um I guess I wouldn't say uncovering because I, I I think it's been in plain sight. I just don't think people have wanted to see it, right? Because um, it's not comfortable to talk about race, right? But um, it it's not as simple as like being a home brewer. We looked at when I was asking um, people like, well, how did you get into beer? Like, wh- how did you start drinking craft beer? Well, so and so I started home brewing because I didn't like regular beer, or my dad worked at a brewery, or I was in college and I started trying beer, or I worked at a bar. Okay, so just those four things right there. All right, if we were to look at how those things are racialized and are certainly laden with privilege and entangled with the systemic racist structure of, well, U.S. society, right, mm-hmm. at writ large. So. The brewery thing we kind of covered, right? But now the homebrewing thing. Well, one, why would one get into homebrewing 
unless one had had other beer and wanted to try other Ooh, beer. That's a great point. Right? So let's say that you were in a position where you did try crap beer or different beer. At the time, it would have been imported beer. Like the homebrew thing sort of started in the late, like mid to late 60s. And now nah, it's much bigger now, the national organizations, all that. But it really gave momentum to like the whole craft beer thing, movement, whatever you want to call it. I don't like to call it a revolution. I think it's more just a wave of, of production, really, than a, a movement. But anyway, that's another topic. But, um, you know, if if you wanted to get in homebrewing, let's just say you heard about it. Well, how would you do it? Well, back then it was illegal to homebrew. So people were having classes at, you know, like UCLA. Berkeley was one example um, where the Maltos Falcons were founded, which is the oldest on-record homebrew club, and they're still in operation today. They've been homebrew for like 50 years together um world renowned so you know you got to know somebody right but these are like chemistry professors during the day that are no fermentation sciences that are going home and they're brewing beer themselves and they're teaching other people right so this is getting spread word of mouth then there's like newsletters and fan clubs and you know little organizations start to pop up but you know this is pre-internet man this is pre i mean it's still like to call long distance at that point you would have had to like get dialed in you know to someone you know so like information didn't travel fast so what that means though sociologically is that a small network of people is even more insulated and isolated right now, if I want to get access to homebrewing and things like that, and I think this is part of the reason why people, you know, sort of like, well, if, pe- if black people want to drink beer, they could just go do it. It's everywhere, right? Well, okay, yeah, so all the information about homebrewing is there, but where's my interest? Where's my motivation to do so whenever I see a, a brewery and everybody and there's white? When I don't see any white people, yeah. or, or anybody, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so it's representation, it's access. And then it's, you know, this conversation about, like, reaching out to the community, like, the movements to change it part, like, working with social media influencers. I mean, hip-hop artists have collaborated with breweries. Um, one, one of our respondents, um, they took craft beer to barbershops in downtown Atlanta and just opened up six-packs, like, and, and just taking beer to people. So what we argue and, and say, like, I guess the way to move it forward is the industry has to take notice of that and they need to be the ones doing that go mm. go hand out free beer go let people try it because you know there's so many levels here there's the industry level and then the sort of marketing mezzo organizational level with breweries and things like that but then there's that consumer level the individual level like and you can do work at all three phases well and that seems like if this is the case then there's a there's i mean just in capitalist terms there's a demographic gold mine out there right well that's the other thing i mean it, it's like you could look at it strictly cap like through capitalist lens and say i mean no pun intended but there's a huge untapped market i mean right now the amount of craft beer produced in the u.s um makes up about or excuse me consumes not produced is i want to say it's like 14 to 17%, I can't remember from last year's figures to this year, of all beer consumed is, is craft beer, okay? So to put that in perspective, then maybe 6 to 7% is considered imported. Mm-hmm. But by now, like, Coronas and Heinekens and things like that aren't imported anymore. They're made here, right? Because we yeah. don't wait anymore, you know? Yeah, yeah. So that means the rest of it is domestic beer. 
and domestic beer is light beer. So to put this in perspective, the largest craft brewery in the country, I believe currently is Sam Adams. So Sam Adams and Sierra Nevada sort of swap off. Mm -hmm. One reason why though is Sam Adams makes cider and cider is recognized because it's a fermentable product um, as beer and categorized in that instead because it's not wine. Um, so they got a boost in their production. They produce annually just under 7 million barrels of beer. Okay. One barrel of beer is two standard kegs. Okay. So like you go to a bar and you see, or keg party, that's, you know, that two and a half foot tall silver keg. That's a standard keg. That's a, um, 15 and a half gallon keg, a half barrel. All right. So 15 and a half gallons of beer and one keg, two kegs per barrel. So 7 million times two is 14 million kegs of craft beer right wow. for that's the, let's just say sam Adams only made boston lager that year they made 14 million kegs of sam adams that's a lot right i mean think yeah. about what 14 million kegs looks like right so get ready for this anheuser-busch the same year okay i think this was 2018 when i was writing about this this is just Bud Light, okay? This isn't Budweiser, Bud Ice, any of the other like specialty crap they do. This is just Bud Light, which is the number one selling beer in the world. Just take a guess. Sam Adams, seven million. How many? Thirty million. Thirty million? Yeah. Not even close. Seventy million. Still not even close. One hundred and fourteen million. Two hundred and seventy million. Damn, dude! I wasn't gonna go that high. No way. Two hundred and seventy million barrels. So. 540 million kegs of just Bud Light. Now, some of that goes to cans, some goes to bottles, but the keg is the easier to figure, mm. right? If you want to divide it into cans, you're talking, you know, I mean, there's almost 150, 160 cans per keg. So, you know, you, you can see it gets really crazy yeah. fast, but that's just Bud Light. But you got to think, man, I mean, they've got breweries all over the world. I mean, multiple breweries just in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Here's a bit of irony, too, because, you know, one of the things in beer, particularly with craft beer, is the freshness. So, like, all these beers have dates stamped on the bottom so when you know when it was canned because it's it's alive, right? And some beers you can age if you want to, but beers like pale ales and stuff like that with hops, drink them fresh because they're not going to taste good. That's when they get bitter and skunky, right? So I had some friends who were in St. Louis, the home of Anheuser-Busch, St. Louis, Missouri, right? went and got uh, Bud Lights at a baseball game, looked on the bottom, and they had the date stamp, and it was from, it gave the location code, and it was from their brewery, uh, I can't remember which one it was, but it was their East Coast Brewery. So they're in St. Louis, the home of Anheuser-Busch, mm -hmm. and that beer still came halfway across the country from their East Coast facility to that baseball That's game. interesting. Right, so you 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 see the scale that we're talking about, right? But whereas like Sam Adams, they have it gets complicated, like contract brewing, where like let's say you owned a brewery, a big brewery, and I'm a startup, I could be like, hey Brian, um, I'm gonna send you my recipes, and I'll pay for the canning, and I'll help pay your labor, and you can get a cut, but I'm gonna need you because I'm trying to expand. I need to use your brew space, so I'm contracting you to brew this beer for me under my name. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So you're basically like, well, it's contracting. Yeah, you know, you, you would, I'm contracting you out to do this for me, but I'm getting the, 
the end of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it, it gets really complex, man. And it, one other amazing thing about doing like research in that is just how little the average drinker knows about the, oh yeah the You're alcohol going, industry man yeah i would this is uh this is very interesting are you are you planning more follow-ups to this topic um so that's an interesting question man um i guess i go back to like when i started this you know i um i didn't see anybody writing about beer the way i was thinking about it you know sociologically or even analytically whatsoever right um everybody would just want to tell the history of beer the history of this brewer no one wanted to like dig in right um so when i set out with my first book the edited volume um untapped i was like you know i have a chance to create a, a, a discourse here right to to start a discourse I should say and um through that i started writing down other questions as i would write different articles i'm like okay i'm gonna go uh explore this now or this now or this now and eventually when i started doing the gender stuff that led me to the race stuff and i got to a point when i was writing this book that there are a lot more questions that were raised and i think any good academic piece should answer questions but also should raise new questions and those aren't necessarily for the authors to answer right that might Audience. be for someone else to answer yeah. so uh having been doing the beer stuff for now i mean going back to my dissertation basically like eight years now um i think that i've got like two or other three maybe small little projects that i want to do like carve out some articles from this like i want to yeah. do something about malt liquor and hip-hop um, with a colleague of mine um, who's a hip-hop expert and anthropologist at Virginia Tech. it would just He was one of my mentors, though, so I was like, man, it would just be cool. I want to publish something with you. He is the one who actually wrote the foreword in the book, Anthony Kwame Harrison. Okay. And you, did you go to school with your co-author here? Brun, no, that's my, that, that's my mentor, man. He was my oh, advisor okay. in grad school. Okay. Wow. He's the one who hooded me at my dissertation ceremony. Wow. Yeah. Um, so he and I have one big last project plan where we would do another edited volume at some point where, but we probably wouldn't contribute anything original, but I think it's time for me. I, I mean, I like to be sort of cutting edge and groundbreaking with my research and use more innovative methodologies. So I kind of look at one thing and get what I want out of it, but then it's not like I'm not still interested in beer. Mm -hmm. There's just not much else that I I want to get out of it, um, and I feel like maybe having sort of established this little sub-discipline, sub-field or whatever, that yeah. I can give it, I can hand it off now. And if people want to keep going with it, they can. If not, maybe that's all there is, right? Maybe we, maybe we milked it dry. Maybe the keg is empty, so to speak, you know, but... I just, uh, I've gotten to the point where I've answered most of the questions that I have, and I just I just want to move on, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Because I do other stuff about music scenes, and, and uh, I'm really interested in just online cultures and how, like, we police those things and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I want to stay, like, fresh and hip and cool doing stuff, but, like, I don't know, man. This, uh, I don't know, did you see the, the, the comments on this, like, on Instagram or Facebook? No, no, no. No, tell uh, us. So I, uh, I sent this book to uh, I sent a copy of the book to um, he, he goes by Don't Drink Beers on Instagram and Facebook. 
His name is Alex Kidd, and he is the number one social media influencer in the world of beer in the world, right? Like, if you've ever traded a beer or you uh, got online and looked up beers and stuff and gone outside of, like, your basic consumption crap, you know who this guy is. I mean, he's 100-something thousand followers across all of his platforms, you know? Um, and, you know, that might seem like a lot when you think somebody like a movie star's got millions, right? But mm-hmm. you're... You're talking about craft beer, which is like it's pretty, a pretty niche thing. Yeah. And then within that niche, you're talking about a level of people like this elite, excuse me, level of people who want to like engage with the culture, you know, like create memes and, and, and uh, you know, participate. It's that, That's different than like I go to a brewery every once in a while. Like these people are online like arguing with people over the value of a beer or this beer is better than that beer because of this, right? Like that's, that's a different level of consumption. You know what I mean? So I sent it to him and I inscribed it and he just posted uh, a picture of the title page here where I had inscribed it. I'd written something here and posted that on his Instagram and just said, uh, it's like, this is not virtue signaling. This is not transmuting wokeness into virtual clout. Like, this is, uh, I can't remember what it says. Like, this is a difficult conversation, but it's an important one that we need to have. It's like, it's time for us to, you know, change, whatever. And I had been messaging him on Instagram and Facebook, and I was like, you know, look, man, I've been researching craft beer for years. Like, you know, I listen to your podcast, uh, your blog. Like, he's very in tune, but very critical of the scene as well, right? He's very clever with satire. So, he like, he gets it on a on a deeper or i would say deeper actually more like heady level right and so when he posted it i mean it i think it was like two and a half three weeks ago or something and it had seven or eight hundred likes and 50 60 comments and normally like his post on instagram will get you know at most like 250 300 likes i think his biggest post had like 15 or 1600 one time so I go to bed next day, I wake up, I go play golf, come back, and I check, and I'm like, I'm tagged in this, I'm tagged in that, I'm tagged in this, I comment this, comment that. People are checking, I'm like, what the hell's going on, right? I look, it's like up to like 4,500 likes, 700 oh something comments. Um, then another beer blogger who only, like, it's called Worst Beer Blog, he takes screenshots of comment sections on beer blogs to just show, like, how just shitty people are to each other you know what i mean and and it's like here's what people are saying so then he posted on facebook and uh alex kid did post the same thing on facebook and that's when things got kind of crazy so in that two-day period man um a lot of the comments we saw were positive right like oh this is so great someone's talking about this like thanks for promoting this i'm pre-ordering the book and our book sales oh yeah the, the two days of this that this happened um, man, and our book is still not even out yet. It, it's pre-ordered at this point, right? We sold 263 copies in that two-day period because of that one post. Wow, yeah. And now we don't, we're not doing it for money, but it just shows you the power of like social media and the influence there, right? You know what I mean? By the way, I will say we are actually like donating a percentage once we won't get our check probably for a year or so and it won't be much maybe a hundred bucks but either way um we've already 
put aside like a percentage to go to, you know, something that's involved with Black Lives Matter or, or increasing diversity in, in, in the brewing industry in some way, right? So we definitely wanted to highlight that kind of stuff. But the rest of the comments, man, are, are kind of in two sort of different buckets, if you will. Um, one is the sort of traditional, well, no, traditional, not the right word, typical um, and certainly inexcusable and unsurprising colorblind sort of response. Oh, well, beer's not racist. You know, there's dark beers and light beers. Ha, 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 right? Okay, yeah, whatever. But to say that, like, you know, the comments like, black people just don't like beer. Why is that a problem? Or who cares? Black people can go learn how to brew if they want. They can get that job, right? So to say, like, I don't see color, that color, colorblind racist ideology is, is negating or discounting or dismissing, rather, the structural inequalities and privileges that are in society, right? Through hundreds of years of systemic racism, right? So that's problematic. But those people you can at least kind of like have a conversation with and say like, well, actually, you know, man, it's not really like that, right? And so we made it a point, you know, to have as many voices of color as possible in the book at all aspects of production consumption, writing journalists. I mean, we had the uh, diversity ambassador from the Brewers Association. I mean, so we, we were nice. trying to be, you know, as, as representative a voice as possible, right? So the other little section of comments is when it got really bad, man. That's when the 4chan stuff. The Confederacy came out. Worse than that. I mean, it was worse than the Confederacy. It was, you know, 4chan people. Like, I mean, we got, yeah, they're empty, but they're, you know, death threats, you know, like in, in the chats, you know, people like, I'll come decapitate the authors or like, you know, it turns into this like cancel culture thing, like if beer's racist, whatever. But not to go down that rabbit hole, but one thing that <clears throat> I would say about the title of the book is we changed it intentionally. I mean, this was right before George Floyd, and then maybe it was just serendipity that happened, but, um, you know, people see the title, Beer and Racism, How Beer Became White, Why It Matters and Movements Change It, and so they fixate on the, the beer and racist, right? And they're like, how can beer be racist? And like, that's actually not what we're arguing. We're saying beer and racism as in beer is entwined with, beer is reflective of, beer is a manifestation of, you know, these things. So beer itself is not racist, but the beer industry is, just like any other. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. So it, it, it's it's a lot of tough, you know, like you got to, you know, my, my, my co-author, man, he, he, he got memed really hard, like because... He had his profile public and everything and um, took a, a just a terrible selfie. I told him it was bad when he took it, him holding the book. And this 4chan people got on it and just memed the, the hell out of him, man. And he really took it hard, you know. And, and I'm like, look, if, if we're writing about something like this and we're not pissing people off, exactly, we man. didn't do it right. <clears throat> it's, uh, you know, I struggle with, like, I put out a lot of content with the podcast and the gym, uh, YouTube and occasionally they'll get a few thousand views yeah. uh, on the video, particularly with my gym videos. I got a little more momentum with the gym videos. But it's weird because people will like, oh, on Instagram, somebody shared something endorsing this move, but then we're also talking shit. They were also talking shit about it. About the technique so, or something. Yeah, they're like, this is a cool move. I wouldn't suggest it, but... Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> why'd you share it on your page, dude? Yeah. 
But um, yeah, it's uh, people ask me frequently, they're like, how do you do with that? Because there's always comments. Uh, if I looked, there would be comments almost every day. Yeah. Uh, but there was one, I, well, I had this uh, uh, the Black Lives Matter organizer from the Clarksville rally, which I went to. And that that one blew up. It got oh two thousand views on on oh, Facebook yeah. or something like that. But just the comments and when people would share it, the comments and their share would blow up super negative. And I was just like, oh yeah, you guys enjoy. So, I didn't I didn't so even read any that, of them. Dude, so speaking of that, uh, maybe I'll end it with this. Uh, yeah. We're drinking this beer right now called Black Is Beautiful from Parish, uh, the same brewery. Tasty, dude. Yeah, it's a first, salted first bite. caramel imperial stout. So this Black is Beautiful beer brew campaign was uh, a lot of breweries. I don't know how many. I think it's over it's close to 50 or 60 breweries all did a, a similar style beer. Um, and all the funding and money is going. And they featured black artists. And all the money is going to Black Lives Matter and, and sort of uh, adjacent, you know, things. But, um, yeah, uh, man, I lost my train of thought. The... Um, what you say, man? Um, oh, we were the Black Lives Matter organizer from Clarksville. People hating on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 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 yeah. So then, man. Yeah, sorry. This is gonna be really good on the podcast. We are drinking beer though. Um, so for the record, ten percent alcohol there. But um, man, so it started on the Instagram. Then it made it play to Facebook. But then my uh, co-author had signed up for um, Google Alerts. So anytime anybody mentions the book, he gets a notice. Yeah. Man, this thing showed up on a Glock forum an ar-15 forum a conservative like white supremacist news forum proud boys it wasn't proud boys but reddit oh um gosh, this was man. like i can't remember what the it wasn't the daily caller the daily storm but it was something to that effect right like liberty news network or some crap like that you know and you know you're like that's also interesting sociologically because you're like well here we had a post about beer and then I think really makes the case for the book even more is because, well, how many of those people then took it about like now it's just about liberal professors and they were they made some really funny Are comments. Are you brainwashing people with and your liberal Indoctrination is the word I prefer, but yeah. Um, no, it was funny how many people made comments about sociologists in particular. It's like, really cool. I don't know. We had that reputation of being, you know. But um, yeah, man, to see it like go to that where it eventually it didn't become about us challenging the the beer industry then it became about somebody else's challenging whiteness somebody else's challenging masculinity somebody else's yeah. challenge you know what i'm saying so that's like to end up on an ar-15 forum or a glock forum about a book about beer how's that happen man so well where can we get the beer night uh the, the book rather we can we can get the beer in uh nowhere because we live in a dry county but the book is on amazon at the moment pre-order um, yeah, it, it's uh, you can pre-order it on Amazon. It'll be available on October fourteenth. Paperback. I wouldn't recommend the hardback. That's a library copy. It's way expensive. But once it's like twenty-five bucks, it's not bad for an academic book. And there are um, e-books available too. You're gonna do? Uh, is it gonna be on Audible or anything? I th I'm not sure which format they're using. If it's Kindle, or Audible, but there is an e uh, like a e-reader yeah, format. Great, yeah, great. I haven't played with Kindle much, but I, I need to start, man. I've done. Uh, some like 75 audiobooks on Audible this year. So it's a game, cha game changer for me. I've been off track because I just did this 48 lecture Egyptology series. Oh, wow. by this uh, Egyptologist I really admire, uh, named Bob Breyer. I'm trying to get him on the podcast. But, That'd be dope. But I was like, I found these on YouTube. Some, some channel put them up, Lost in History. 
and uh, it's 48 lectures, and I was like, my mind was blown. Oh, yeah, man. Right? And I was just teaching about Egypt and Civ, so I cranked them out in like two weeks. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it was good. Nice, yeah. man. Well, Nate, thanks for uh, coming back on. Yeah, guests listening can go. Uh, you were on with your band, Black Sabbatical, previously. We so were. and uh, Repeat offenders. Yeah, man, it's... Uh, it's great to sit down and talk with you. I was looking forward to hearing about this, and thanks cool, for the man. copy. Yeah, thanks for having yeah. me, Brian. Appreciate right on, it, brother. Take it easy.